the New Money Review podcast. I'm Paul Amory, editor of New Money Review. What does the term money laundering mean? Well, if you've watched the film Scarface, you can picture perhaps Al Pacino sitting above boxes of $100 bills, counting them, dealing with a dodgy lawyer and trying to get the cash illicitly obtained, laundered into the, into the financial system, perhaps into a bank account or maybe into a property transaction to conceal where he got the money from. But on a global scale, it's very hard to define. Money laundering is generally taken to mean any kind of financial crime. It could mean the financing of terrorism, the evasion of international sanctions. It could involve different kinds of uh, financial asset, for example, not just cash, but also shares and bonds, increasingly digital currencies or cryptocurrencies, credit cards and property transactions. So how do we make sense of all this? Well, I'm delighted to be joined on the podcast by Neil Walsh, who's the head of the Cybercrime, Anti-Money Laundering and Counterfinancing of Terrorism Department at the United Nations based in Vienna. Neil, thanks very much for joining the New Money Review podcast. My pleasure. I'd like to uh, ask you, first of all, to tell us a little bit about your work at the United Nations, what you're working on. Sure. So I'm the uh, the head of the Cybercrime and Anti-Money Laundering Department, and we're based at the UN Office on Drugs and Crime in Vienna. Um, The majority of my staff are based overseas and we do a lot of work to support the capacity building of cops, prosecutors and judges to investigate uh, cyber-based, anti-money laundering-based terrorist financing and also the the criminal proliferation of nuclear fissile material uh, and the the money laundering base around that. So all of those sorts of offences, we try and uh, give a skill set to those countries that ask for us to come and do that and to help them to, uh, to counter the threats in their countries. We're entirely extra budgetary funded, so I don't get any money out of the UN's regular budget, and I have to go hunting for it, advertising for it, begging for it from, uh, from governments and other actors as well. So what is the role of the United Nations in this area, as opposed to other international bodies like the FATF, the Financial Action Task Force, and other relevant multinational, or multilateral or international bodies? Sure, it's a great question. Um, at UNODC, the Office on Drugs and Crime, we're, we're not a regulatory body, we're not an assessment body, we're not an evaluation body. So you've got uh, FATF, you've got World Bank, you've got others that can do mutual evaluations of countries to see how they are complying with uh, FATF guidelines and recommendations. We don't do that. We are politically neutral and objective, so we will work with any country irrespective of where they are in that mutual evaluation process. They could be in the best possible place. They could be grey-listed, blacklisted, uh, and things like that, and we will still work with them to try and help them get their uh, their cross-government capabilities in the right place to try and counter the threats that they're dealing with. So our job is to deliver that capacity building and that support rather than making a judgment on the effectiveness of a country per se. So just to be clear, so you can work with the countries that, uh, for example, the FATF might blacklist? Correct. And, and are you doing so or have you done so? Yes. Okay. Um, can we start with, uh, let's start with a question about money laundering. How do you define money laundering? Another great question. Um, there are unsurprisingly a ton of politics in what we do. So we seek to try not to too tightly define a lot of our work because what we tend to see is if you get mired in the in the definitional aspects, that often between countries, between regions, and even within countries, there will be uh, some really challenging discussions on how to define something. 
So I guess it's kind of pull if you look like it, if it looks like a duck, sounds like a duck, quacks like a duck, it's, it's a duck. And we, we kind of go down that path of, of looking at what does the member state that we're working with, what, how do they define things? What regulations and policy do they use? And we'll work with them around that. We will naturally be very supportive of FATF and its guidelines, recommendations and, and, and seek to use that. And also more broadly within the UN, we look at uh, broader illicit financial flows within uh, within sustaining development and, and trying to make uh, world financial systems a safer and a better place. So really, it's a it's a movable feast in many ways, and we will be guided by the countries that we're working with. Okay, so given that you don't have a firm definition of money laundering, is it possible then to estimate what the global volume of money laundering is and how fast it might be rising? Yeah, it's another great question. There's been there has been some work done on this um, probably ten odd years ago now, where there was a, a research report done by the United Nations on the on the size and scale of money laundering. My challenge with with reports that try to scale the market, the size of the market, is that um, from my background in in policing and, and international law enforcement, it's exceptionally difficult to try and do. Because if we take the premise that the majority of what we're looking at here is a covert activity, it is intentionally hidden, trying to accurately scale that and accurately put metrics around that, I think is incredibly difficult. I think trying to put reliable quantitative metrics on it is incredibly difficult. I've heard anything from one through to 8% of global GDP being involved in money laundering, but actually trying to put some accuracy on that, I find uh, exceptionally challenging. Okay. Um, what about the relationship between cybercrime and money laundering? Has the, the the rise of the internet, the ability to do business cross border in you know virtual formats, uh, enabled more money laundering? Yeah, without doubt. And a lot of the work that we've been doing in the past, I guess, the past eighteen twenty four months, has been looking at that those uh, sort of synergies between traditional cyber dependent and cyber enabled crime and more traditional money laundering methodologies. And my staff have been very active in the policy side as well as the operational support and tactical advice side. So, for example, we've been doing a lot more work in the in the past year and a half on cryptocurrencies, be it Bitcoin, Ethereum, Monero, and all of the other uh, crypto coins that are out there. And we've been supporting member states in, if you're a country that has no policy, no legislation, no cognizance of the threat, how do you seek to address that? right the way through to those countries that have defined it, some have regulated it, some have outlawed it. How do we help them with operational support where we see cryptocurrencies being used in kidnap for hostage, in terrorism casework, in traditional cybercrime? And that's where I see those real joins coming together, Paul, where those enablers of of cyber uh, criminality are really helping across a broad uh, scheme of organized crime and terrorism. And that's why my piece of the business within the UN deals with cyber and anti-money laundering and terrorist financing, because they are the enablers of crime and terrorism. And that's really where we're putting a lot of uh, a lot of focus now. So does that mean your work in this area is becoming more integrated? You can't look at money laundering without looking at cyber. You can't look at cyber without looking at terrorist financing. It's all kind of one big, big topic then from your perspective. I think all of the areas require their own discrete expertise, but there is certainly bleed in across all of them. I wouldn't say that every offence or every aspect of money laundering is directly supported or enabled by a cyber-based offence, but we are certainly seeing more of it. If you're looking at criminality, be it crime or terrorism that happens on the internet, 
we ha- I think we have to take the, the premise that most crime and terrorism is still done for profit. And if we see that profit being moved or facilitated online, especially through a cryptocurrency that is either pseudo-anonymous or totally anonymous, then we have to we have to be cognizant of that threat. We have to help our policymakers, our politicians around the world to understand that, to make sure that their policy and capabilities are in the right place to try and counter these threats and really to help cross the whole of government in the countries that we're working with to really tie up their own capabilities at identifying and managing risk quite the same way that we are within the UN as well. Could you talk a bit more about how some of the individual governments you've worked with or are working with uh, have responded to the invention of cryptocurrencies? I, I get the impression as a journalist that uh, you know a few years ago, governments thought of this as a bit of a nuisance and were kind of hoping it would go away. But uh, over the periods uh, since then, perhaps uh, it's now, you know, people are realizing this is here to stay and they have to have strategies to work out you know what this means what it means for tax collection what it means for crime what it means for you know many other areas payments yeah financial systems. I, I really think you've, you've hit a number of nails on the head there um it's if i look back to i was briefing um 100 politicians from 30 different countries uh back in 2017 on darknet markets, on cybercrime, and on cryptocurrencies. And there really wasn't a great amount of cognizance. Some had heard of them, but that was kind of it. They didn't really have a sense of the scale or what it's about. And I think now when we start to explain the real scale of this, that it, that it's, that 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 understanding of risk is now becoming much better. And really, as we're talking, Paul, and just for the for context for your listeners, we're, we're recording this at the end of January. And as I look on uh, coinmarketcap.com, looking at the, the uh, market capitalization of cryptocurrencies, it is, it is phenomenal. Uh, Bitcoin has a dominance of 66%, but there are currently 5,000 different cryptocurrencies in the marketplace. So it's a very fast evolving market for sure. I'd like to ask you to put those cryptocurrency or the use of cryptocurrencies into some perspective when it comes to sure. money laundering or illicit financing. I, I was looking at a report that's just been put out by Chainalysis on crypto crime during uh, 2019. And they estimate that the share of cryptocurrency volume that relates to some form of Ill- illegal activity is about 1%. And when I've spoken to the people on this topic in the past, a lot of people have said, well, sure, there's some scams going on. There's some uh, cybercrime, you know, blackmail, ransomware related activity in cryptocurrency. And it's, it, the, the volumes are increasing. But the vast majority of you know, international money laundering is still done yeah. with suitcases of $100 bills or, you know, even more importantly, through, um, you know, lack of corporate transparency, people, people laundering money through property markets, through South Dakota trusts or British Virgin Islands companies. You know, how, how can you put this in perspective? Yeah, and that, that feels to me to be about right as well. Um, we've seen cryptocurrencies increasing over the past couple of years, but I, as you rightly say, I think their place in the overall uh, money laundering and terrorist financing uh, methodology is, is still at the lower end of this. Um my staff in Southeast Asia in the past year have, have had a remarkable impact on just the, the basic cash-based smuggling and money laundering activity at borders in Southeast Asia. We're currently supporting casework. Um, you'll understand that. I won't say which countries it's in, but supporting casework where individuals have been detected at an airport going through with a suitcase with uh, $8 million uh, US dollars in cash in the suitcase. And 
certainly in my previous life in in running money laundering operations uh, internationally, there was still that that real desire, I think, and that that comfortable idea of criminals of being comfortable with cash, being comfortable with brass plate and uh, non-identified companies and and the infrastructure around that. So cryptocurrencies create a new methodology and new capability. Is it the biggest part of money laundering or terrorist financing now? No. Could it be in the future? Potentially, but we're, we're a way off of that. So yeah, I still think the main focus ought to be on those methodologies that we know are out there, on the regulatory aspects, on compliance, on having good customer due diligence in place to try and minimize those those basic but little but often risks that uh, that really do carry significant quantity quantity and qualification. So could you could you talk a bit more about the role of uh, anonymous companies, anonymous corporate structures or trusts in facilitating money laundering? There have been a number of international initiatives to try and improve transparency regarding the beneficial ownership of companies and, and trusts, but how successful are they? Uh, being it's having some success without doubt and i think where we see and uh, my staff sit as observers at fatf uh, some of the conversations that we have with with other member states who are at that and and those who are working in casework would tend to suggest that when regulation is applied properly then it can have some real impact but i guess paul i look at all of this comes down to the scale and the ability to to actually implement regulation Regulation, law, policy on its own is fairly meaningless. If you don't put staffing costs behind that, if you don't put regulators in place, either at law enforcement level, at policy level, in customs and taxation, if you don't have the skill set to actually investigate and to analyze that threat, then I think it's incredibly difficult to actually start to have some, some real impact against it. And I think when we look at the methodologies that are out there, all different money laundering typologies, if we don't bring those experts together, both at law enforcement and policymaker level, then it becomes really hard to have a strategic impact on the on the opposition who are doing this. And that's where I see um, so my staff, for example, will bring together anti-money laundering, terrorist financing, investigative experts around the world, bring them together here in Vienna a couple of times a year from countries that maybe politically don't work together particularly well, but at an operational law enforcement level, they will. And that gives us the ability to make sure that we're all on focus, that we're identifying new risks as they emerge, that we're trying to understand on a day-to-day, month-by-month basis what the modus operandi of, of criminals and terrorists are and where we then start to identify the policy gaps, the regulation gaps, the strategic, operational and tactical gaps. And from that, you get a better picture of threat that you can respond to rather than waiting for the market to change and try to play catch-up. Yeah, how, how big a challenge is the lack of harmonization between individual countries, individual jurisdictions when it comes to transparency of corporate ownership, transparency of ownership of bank accounts, property, these kinds of things? There seems to be a great unevenness still. Yeah, and I think we see that playing out across multiple different areas within within organized crime and terrorism, that there are very different positions taken by different countries in terms of not just harmonization of legislation or regulation, but just simply applying regulation or sanctions that already exist. And I guess the the key message that I would give to to countries and policymakers is that you have a great body of knowledge, you have a great body of regulation and legislation that already exists. 
the more you apply this, the more you apply it equally and use those opportunities to grow international cooperation, you start to have real impact because... One example, the, let's take the UK as an example. So if I, I looked up before the uh, interview uh, how the FATF, the Financial Action Task Force, Force categorizes the UK from a money laundering perspective. And it says, FATF says that the UK has a well-developed and robust regime to combat money laundering, and it's a global leader in pro uh, promoting corporate transparency. But if I look at what the Tax Justice Network says about the UK, uh, it places it, uh, if you include the UK's overseas territories and uh, foreign dependencies with the UK, it would actually rank at the top of the, of the uh, countries in the world by in terms of offering financial secrecy. So who's right here? That's a great question. And as you're asking questions about the UK, you will understand that I would have to refer you to the UK to answer those questions. I think more broadly, what I'd be content to say is that there are a number of different ways, a number of different methods, a number of different sources that can give you a good view as to how your anti-money laundering and terrorist financing or counter-financing of terrorism regimes are working. And that in, in, the, in the round, taking a broad sense of resources and, and scale allows a country or a group of countries or, or, or a UN body to have a broader view as to what's actually going on on the ground. And that's why it's really important for countries not simply to rely on evaluation methodology, but also to make sure that they're getting views from, from NGOs, from the private sector, from journalists to help inform their opinion. But in terms of a specific response to the UK or their view on that, I'd have to ask you to go to them. Okay, but I mean, it, it, would you agree then that there is there has been a trend uh, since the maybe nineteen eighties towards competition in terms of offering financial secrecy? So you have individual states in the US now offering uh, trust structures where individuals can basically hide their uh, wealth or their family's wealth indefinitely, and, and and those states competing with each other for for the revenue that comes from setting up those corporate or trust structures. Uh, it doesn't seem to be much of a level playing field, and if anything, it's getting worse. You know, would you agree with that assessment? Yeah, I think that that feels to me to be about right. That we would tend to see any opportunity there is for for hiding um, assets and the ability to identify those assets, and we we've got to be really careful here that. We fully support the, the security of banking and, and financial infrastructure. That's vital to allow it to work. However, we need to make sure that there is a proportionate, legal, accountable, and necessary mechanism for countries to, to comply with regulation and legislation, to counter uh, money laundering, and to counter um, financing of terrorism. And it would seem to me that if there are structures that continue to grow and emerge that makes that fundamentally more difficult, that, that that is not overall in the best interests of society. And we need to bring this back, I think, to an individual level as well, Paul, where people, individuals are doing this, whether you are a high net worth individual, right the way down to a normal member of the public who are seeking to, how do you grow your assets? How do you manage your financial assets? If you are doing that in a way that is not allowing the necessary regulatory transparency, that is not overall helping you. That is not helping your society to grow. And we need to reflect incredibly carefully on that. So, so given these uh, tensions and, and challenges, what, what, is the, what would you say is the role of uh, non-governmental organisations and journalists in helping to c combat money laundering and cybercrime? It's, uh, I think that the role that especially investigative journalism, journalism more broadly and NGOs plays has never been more important. 
it seems to me, and this is certainly the, the view that I get out of uh, Secretary General in New York and uh, and and the the upper senior leadership team in the UN is is that we really have this broad church of needing the advice, the guidance, the policy support that civil society plays um, and beyond just being traditional government. And this is this is some of the challenges that we face in the UN that a lot of the work is done is entirely governmental. And often I'll see things in the press where it's critical and uh, probably rightly critical of the UN. But what is often missed and the nuance that missed in that is that my staff and I, our ability to make decisions or to change how things are done is exceptionally limited. And that's because the the mechanisms of managing how the UN works is actually set by member states. It's not set by us, the staff inside. So if we see things, if you see things, people who are listening to this podcast see things that they're not content with, the people to address that with are your politicians in your home country. They are the people that guide what we can do, that we can help to get people like NGOs and journalists more involved in our work. And if you think that's, uh, think that's important, then please do get involved. In fact, there's a there's a campaign running right now for the UN at 75, the UN 75 years old this year. Have a look under the hashtag, uh, hashtag UN 75. And there is a mechanism for every member of the public around the world to get involved, have their say on what we ought to be doing. And that in turn gives us a better way of negotiating with host countries and member states in, uh, in giving us the, uh, the flexibility to respond to the, the real threats that are harming us today. And uh, thank you for uh, mentioning that initiative. So, so you, you, you would, you're basically saying that this is like it, it's, it's rising uh, uh, in politicians' agendas. This topic and it's becoming, you know, a more prominent subject amongst uh, and the, the broader, you know, in, in broader public opinion. Definitely, I think uh, I think everybody has a role to play in countering the financing of terrorism and countering money laundering. We, you know, we see time and time again um, when when money mules are are especially used, and it's often students who are targeted for withdrawing or moving cash between accounts on behalf of criminals, not realizing that they're potentially committing an offence. And criminality only succeeds where there is a policy vacuum, where there's a law enforcement vacuum, but when people turn a blind eye. And we all see things. We all have the ability to notice things that are wrong, and that's where we need to make sure that we can engage appropriately with law enforcement, with those who are countering crime, with journalists, with NGOs, and really shine a myopic light on these risks and, and draw these risks out, not be afraid to do so. Yeah, I suppose a counter argument is that you know people should have a, some basic rights to financial privacy, uh, and particularly as in many countries around the world, uh, we're moving away from a cash-based transaction regime towards digital payments, uh, payments being made by mobile phone or, or uh, directly from bank account to bank account in, in other uh, in other ways uh, you know g- given that that's going on you know what, what do you make of this sort of basic expectation of privacy and can uh, initiatives like uh, governments uh, decisions in several countries to withdraw high denomination banknotes you know have an effect uh, you know where, where is this all heading this debate yeah, again, a very, very valid point, and uh, I agree entirely on the on the need for financial privacy for individuals. That's why what I said earlier about having proportionate, legal, accountable, necessary structures uh, for 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 keeping us safe, whilst at the same time at the same time uh, sitting within that that fundamental human right of privacy, I think it, it is exceptionally important. Um, I think it's fascinating seeing how economies are changing, moving from cash-based into the, into digital economies, 
how we see that playing out in terms of regulation and access to funding. Uh, for example, this year, we've now seen UNICEF, the Children's Fund, launching a cryptocurrency uh, ability where they can take donations to help their work in keeping children safe around the world in cryptocurrencies. And I honestly never thought I would see that. So we see the world changing. I wonder if regulation keeps up with that. I wonder sometimes if we're having all of the right discussions about, about getting the balance right in this. And I think this is, again, where the role of the role of the private sector, of financial institutions, of journalists in drawing our attention on what real life is and what real life is like for people who don't have easy access, for example, to cash or don't have access to bank accounts easily. How can we make sure that they have access to finance, how they have the opportunity to grow their own finance and their own access to finance without getting into a a a state that has uh, you know large oversight from the state or or it makes it more difficult for people to grow their own uh, their own financial capability I mean, this clearly ties into a broader debate about uh, privacy on the internet the extent to which individual's data is being uh, you know collected sucked up and then exploited by yep. corporations uh, to what extent is the work you're doing at the united nations uh, tied into the debates on uh, internet privacy, uh, data, uh, and data security. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's directly involved. It is directly involved. And a lot of the work that, uh, that I do in New York is, is very much related to this, where we look at um, countries are trying to agree norms that uh, they can, basically what countries can do to each other or with each other online in terms of state-on-state -state activity. And a lot of this is also where I, where I see that probably that disconnect sometimes between government and private sector. If a discussion on online norms or cybersecurity, cybercrime, privacy online is only between government, we're kind of missing a major part of the conversation where we look at the Cambridge Analytica's, we look at Facebook, we look at Twitter, we look at that broad, the positives that are brought by uh, um access to the internet versus the risks, I think, where we see disinformation, we see misinformation, we see the risks that are brought with this as well. I'm not sure what the solution to this is, and I'm not sure anybody has a, a perfect solution to it yet. We are speaking to each other, we are speaking to the right companies involved, but I think if we knew what the solution was, we would have reached it already, and we're, we're way off of that. Could you talk a bit about the areas of work you're currently uh, prioritising at the UN, any particular projects uh, that you could mention? So on the capacity building side, which is the main bread and butter work of my staff, it is we're looking at cryptocurrency investigative capability, where we have seen in some countries a real growth in, how do I, best way to explain this, of let's say you, Paul, you are a man that has $100 million of cryptocurrency and that that is publicly known. We see people like you being kidnapped for ransom, relatively high net worth capability um, uh, in cryptocurrencies, being kidnapped for ransom, held hostage. And then my staff have been giving the operational and tactical advice on tracing those cryptocurrencies, trying to gather evidence or intelligence that helps recover the victim in this case. So we've seen that increase. and We've put a lot of investment into doing that. And we can only do that because we, we get the support of governments that allow my staff to function, to have jobs and to do their job. And I'm, I'm really grateful for them that allow us to do that. 
at a more political and policy level. Uh, I'll be in New York. Did you, sorry to interrupt you. Did, did you get the individuals back or, and their cryptocurrency? Or can you give uh, it, show any lines of what happened? In a good way. Yeah, I wouldn't go into more detail than that, but it is uh, it is having good operational impact. And I'm, I'm really happy to see that. Um, but there is, I guess there's a strong prevention me- message in this as well, that if you're a woman or a man of, wor- of net worth in this, you probably ought not to be advertising it too much or putting it too widely out there on the internet because there is that risk that people will see that and then seek to to, to come after you to try and get that. So it's yeah. being cognizant of that and managing your own risk. At a higher political level, we're doing a load of work uh, between countries to mitigate and de-escalate online risk of state-on-state cyber attacks. That continues to be challenging. It continues to have some real risk around it. I know the Secretary General himself is uh, is really concerned about this. But we are speaking to all the countries that are that are involved in this, and I'm I'm really glad to see that countries from around the world, irrespective of their size or scale, are really interested in having these conversations and trying to make the internet a safe place for everybody. And uh, Here, Neil, you're talking about uh, countries potentially attacking each other's infrastructure, whether yep. infin- internet infrastructure or even physical infrastructure. Correct. Yeah, which which is a, a rising concern. It is, and we see this. Uh, I think in the past we would have thought, well, this is a this is an economically developed first world problem. It isn't. These risks apply from every country, from 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 the, mo- the smallest with the least developed infrastructure right the way through to the top end. These risks apply to business. We see cryptocurrency exchanges being hacked and losing a phenomenal amount of money to their customers. We see governments being challenged online by their non-like-minded state actors. We see cyber criminals doing the same sort of business on behalf of of actors that are hard to identify. We see the UN infrastructure being attacked. So, yeah, it's highly relevant, and I see that threat growing rather than uh, decreasing. And on an individual level, what areas of work have you found most satisfying and most challenging? Most satisfying, without doubt, is where we've had impact on countering online child sexual abuse. We've had some really impactful work in Central America, where my staff there have helped governments and policing in in two countries to identify very high-risk online paedophiles who had raped and sexually tortured 30-something children in the pre-verbal infant category, so our youngest of children, and who were also um, abusing children, over 50 children online in four other countries. The work that we have done, and that's partnered with uh, uh, companies like Google, Facebook, and Microsoft, have led to the identification, arrest, and recovery of these kids and really making some real impact and saving lives. And and that's what really is uh, is my driving force and the driving force of my staff behind this. This is what makes a difference day in, day out. And most challenging areas of work? Most challenging areas of work, um, getting countries to recognise that they're all facing the same threat and that it's probably better to work together than against each other. Neil, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. listening to this new Money Review podcast. The world of money is changing fast. We see new stores of value like cryptocurrencies, new ways of paying each other like contactless and digital wallets, and new ways of recording ownership. 
New Money Reviews articles and our podcast can help you stay on top of what's going on. If you'd like to support our work, you can make a one-off donation or a regular payment. Details of how to do so are on our website, newmoneyreview.com, at the bottom right of our homepage.